0: Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we've resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 Faith Community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. Hey, okay. just to make everybody comfortable today, I want to start out by telling you about the first time I saw porn. <laughs> so I was in third grade, and uh, it, it, it gets better, don't worry. Uh, I won't make it awkward, except that part. Uh, so it, in third grade, uh, I, was out, I was out at recess, just playing, you know, on the swings or the monkey bars or whatever the heck. Um, do they still do that? I don't know. We did that. So we were playing, and uh, this kid's like, hey, Chris, check this out. And he pulls out this little picture from his pocket, and it's this naked woman. And he shows it to me, and I'm like, oh, okay, let's go play in the swings, you know, and let's let's go back. And and I remember, it's weird that that sticks with me to this day, because that's a long time ago. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's um, that's weird. Or like, something about it was not right. Something about it was uh, shameful. Something about it was broken. And maybe it was one of the first times I learned that the world is broken, that there's stuff that there's something not right out there, something is off kilter. And I think over and over through childhood I had, and and growing into an adult, I've had these instances or these moments where I I realized that things are not as they should be, that things are broken. Third grade was that, and fifth grade, uh, my my grandmother died. I remember feeling like, oh, something's not right here. And then my parents got a divorce. They had been, maybe I'd seen it coming, they'd been fighting and not been getting along well. And so their, their, their marriage broke up. And so my mom, I ended up living with my mom, my brother and I, and it was, okay, this, is, this family is now broken in some way. And so I was aware of that. And then uh, and, and something about that felt not quite right. And then I hit middle school and pretty much all of middle school is like three long years of like, this is just not right. Something's not right here, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you probably have your own stories about that, but like all of middle school is this, is this period of like things don't seem quite right. I actually remember it was around sixth grade, we went to a high school football game and the thing to do at the high school football games was to go back behind the bleachers and kind of hang out in the fields there and, and kind of do whatever the concession stand or whatever. And I remember being with some friends right around sixth grade, and uh, we went back there, and uh, someone off in the distance had a cigarette, and my, my friend next to me ran over. And was like, oh, you have some cigarettes. Give me one, and they all started smoking, and I didn't know that was a thing that kids did. Uh, I was, whatever, 12, 11, and I was like, oh, Oh, okay. It, it was like it was like my naivety and my 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 youthful, uh, you know, just this. I, I didn't realize, but all that kind of died. That my innocence sort of died that day. I was like, oh, like people do stuff, like this is you know bad stuff or whatever. So there was that. And then uh, in high school, I had more examples of the world being broken. I remember the kid Jeff, who sat in my homeroom class. He sat behind me in in, in homeroom class, and I remember the weekend we came in on a Monday, and they said he basically put a gun to his head over the weekend, and he was gone. And, and I remember how shocking that was, that somebody I knew was just no longer here. And it was just another example to me that the world is uh, really broken, and the world is not right, uh, that, that the things I see around me, that, that they don't add up, they, they, they don't add up to something good, and, and that, that things aren't as they're supposed to be. Now, I don't know, I don't know all your stories. But my guess is that your story's like mine, that there are moments along the way that if you went back and did the work, you could sort of count through all that and think through all that and look at your timeline and you would go, yeah, this is when I discovered this. This is when I discovered this. This is when this fell apart. This is when this thing blew apart. And, and you have these incidences all throughout your life where you realize that the world is messed up. And it's, and it's worse than that. It's not just that the world is messed up. I think if you're honest, if I'm honest, if we're honest with ourselves and each other, we would say... It's not just the world is messed up. I'm messed up too. Like I've done stuff. I've, I've told lies. I have I, broken things. I, I, have, I have looked at things I shouldn't look at. I, I have been places I shouldn't go. I have consumed things I shouldn't have consumed. Like we, we have these stories. We all have them. And so when we say the world is broken, I don't just mean, oh, systemic problems out there. Or, oh, these nations are bad. Or oh, these people are bad. I mean it's in me too. And I think... If we're honest, we would all recognize that. The world is not right, and somebody needs to do something about that. Well, it turns out our feeling of the world being not right goes way back. It's, it's, not, just, um, it, it's, it's not just something we discovered here. It's not some psychological thing of the 20th or the 21st century. Uh, the, the, The history of the world being not right and people feeling that way and feeling the tension goes back to the beginning of history. And I want to take you there. And we're in this series called The Road to Christmas, and we're looking at things that lead up to Jesus being born. You got to know the backstory if we're going to celebrate Christmas and yay, and Joseph and angels and shepherds and all that kind of stuff. We're going to celebrate the whole thing of Jesus being born. We need to understand what got us there? What were people thinking about? What was happening in the world that led us up to that point? Um, and in the, in the course of human history, man, man's interaction with God, what was going on there? So we're looking at some of the backstory here for the weeks leading up to when we celebrate together on Christmas Eve. And so I want to go all the way to the very backstory, Adam and Eve. Um, Adam and Eve had a very good situation. I don't know if you, you think about this, but you sort of think, well, it sounds kind of boring. They were like hanging out in this garden. But if it's paradise and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and the weather is good and you have this other person and, they, and you guys are really tight and you have this great connection and everything is fine. The scripture says they were naked. They were unashamed. Uh, the animals were great. Uh, they, they had a great relationship with God. They were not angsty about anything. They didn't have all of the things that we take for granted in normal life. They didn't have like jealousies and bitterness and Bad relationships with in-laws. They didn't even have in-laws. I mean, they didn't have. They they had this situation that is really pretty fantastic. And, and then it goes badly, right? They, there's one thing, there's one rule that they couldn't break and they decide to break that. And then this is when the world starts to go off course. They sin um, and then uh, they, they get kicked out of the garden. So they were in this perfect paradise and God says, all right, you, you, you've broken the relationship. You've introduced sin into, into the relationship here. Uh, and so you're, you're out, of, out of paradise. Um, on their way out, uh, you see something interesting because if, if you remember, and you've probably heard this, we've talked about it before, but when they sin, they realize they're naked. They, they take this fruit from this tree. They realize they're naked, and they cover themselves with fig leaves, but there's a more permanent clothing solution that shows up at the end of Genesis 3. I want to read it to you on their way out of the Garden of Eden, and hold on. We're going to read a lot of scripture today, okay? Because uh, I want to unpack a concept for you that is all through the Scripture, and we need to, we need to, we need to get it um, to understand some of the background of Jesus' birth. So uh, at the end of Genesis 3, listen to what happens as they leave the garden. The man, Genesis 3 verse 20, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Made garments of skin and clothed them. So here's the thing. Adam and Eve sinned, and then animals die. That's what happened. They sinned, and then animals die. That's where the skin came from to make clothing. They were clothed in wool, you know, fur, that kind of stuff. Um, This is what happened. Their sin was covered over by the death. Of an animal. When you uh, there's a there's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament to, to describe the covering over of something. It's the word kafar. um and it is translated uh, sometimes as cover, but it's also translated as atone, atonement. When you make atonement for something, you cover over it. You um, you you. It stands in your place for that thing. The atonement means there was sin. Uh, we're going to cover over it. We're going to make it better. We're going to to reconcile the thing. That's the concept of atonement that's in in the ancient world and in the scriptures. And that's one of the first instances you see of it is they sin and an animal's body, an animal sacrifice, and it it covers over, they end up covering over themselves over um, the sin. So the thing I want you to remember is as soon as a sin shows up, an animal, something has to die. And in this case, it was an animal. Well, this goes on throughout uh, the history of the Old Testament, the history of history. After, Cain, uh, after Adam and Eve, they have children, uh, Cain and Abel, two of their sons. There's some jealousy and anger that arises there that one of them offers an offering to God that's pleasing to God and the other one's offering is not pleasing. Uh, they, they kind of, you know, mailed it in or whatever. And so Cain gets angry about that. And he rises up and he kills his brother Abel. So at first it was just Adam and Eve ate some fruit they weren't supposed to and they were given this knowledge and really, Adam and Eve were tempted in the same way that we are. They were tempted to, to, to become awesome and become like God. Um, and that, that was their first temptation, the pride that goes with that. And then in their children, you see anger and murder kind of well up. And then in Genesis 5, as you keep going through the Old Testament, Genesis 5, you see this list of generations. It's one of these like, long lists of names of people that have kind of, this family grows into these people. And Adam lives for 900 plus years. And by the time Adam dies... So get this, by the time Adam dies, if you, have a, if you have children every 25 years and you have four of them, let's say, in the ancient world and then they have four and then they have four and you kind of imagine the family tree going out, by the time Adam dies at, at around 930 years old, he would have had about a million descendants. That's crazy, isn't it, how the math kind of works on that? It's, it's amazing how quickly the population can grow from just one, one couple. He would have had about a million descendants, that's a massive family reunion, Uh, That's a a lot of barbecue to get through for for a family reunion. So you have a million descents It walks you through that. But it goes really badly for the people on earth. Um, They're sinning, and it's getting worse, and it's becoming a big mess. And finally, in Genesis 6, uh, God decides to wipe it out and start over. Like within generations, it has gone so poorly and, and people are so wicked. Listen to the way people are described in Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a lot, right? It's all bad all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then I love verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So there's one guy in his family. God, God's like, I'm going to wipe it all out because it's so, people are so wicked. And, and I know that feels, you read this, this is one of the things modern readers go, oh, it's a, God's a genocidal maniac. Look, it's really bad. It's bad to a level we're not even, we're not even close to now. You think, oh, you, oh, it's awful out there right now, Chris. People are at each other's throats. Not like this. It was horrible. And God goes, I'm going to wipe them out and start over. And yet there's this thread of redemption. There's, there's, there's Okay, but, but there's somebody good here. So God deals with it by a, a, a flood. And from that time on, you see this consistent pattern um, as God, especially as he starts dealing with Israel, that the people would sin and mess up, and then there would have to be some sort of atonement for their sin. There's some way of dealing with it. It's not like they sin, and it's just like, well, it's no big deal. It's like, no, you sin. This has caused a problem. This has caused a rift in a relationship with you and another person, and a rift in your relationship with you and God, and God makes a system, sets up a system in order to deal with everyone's sin, um, it, 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 because, because there's, there's lots of evil. People make bad choices, yes, but there's also systemic things and societal things and nations and tribes have become corrupt and, and, and God deals with this and he comes up with a system of animals dying for the sins of people. Um, and so let me, let me, let me. I'm going to read to you a, a piece from Le- Leviticus here in a second. But to understand that Leviticus is the kind of book when you're reading through the Bible, if you go, I'm going to read through the Bible, you read through Genesis and you're like, well, that was some rough stuff in there. There was some, it got dark and, you know, it was, it's a messed up family tree. And then Exodus, you're like, oh, Moses in Egypt, I know this story. There's like, let my people go. And there's like, they did movies on this. I think Disney did a movie on this. Like, I know this one, you know, and you go through Exodus. You're like, that's cool. And then you get to Leviticus. And Leviticus is a book of rules. And ain't nobody enjoy reading that. It's a book of laws. Unless you're a lawyer and you like reading case law, you don't like reading the book of Leviticus. It's just like, oh, it's just laws about stuff. And and they're weird, right? Like, Laws from an ancient culture, an ancient uh, tribe of Israel, a nation of Israel, and like specific laws about their time and place. And you read it now as a modern reader and you go like, I don't get this and I don't really care. And I don't know why they have these rules about how their field is supposed to be planted and what kind of fabric they should have in their clothing. Like, should they or should they not eat shellfish? I just kind of like shellfish. I don't know why there's laws about this. This It's weird, right? We read that stuff and it seems really... not important to us. I mean, there's an entire chapter on bodily discharges. Uh, you're not going to read. No one's, no one's putting that on a coffee mug. Nobody's, nobody's reading that and they're quiet. No one's Instagramming their Bible. Oh, I read about bodily discharges. Where God really spoke to me. No. But what do we get out of that? Well, you get that God cares about the details and you get that uh, God has ordered the universe in a particular way, and that, and, that, and that God was ahead of us in our understanding of science and knowledge and all that. God knew what things needed to be dealt with, and God dealt with those things. We didn't know about, you know, trichinosis or whatever, but God knows how to handle these things and, and, and orders these things. Um, And I think we learned some things about the character of God and about us. And in Leviticus 16, because it's a book of laws, but it also gives a lot of instructions for the priests. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should not do. Here's how you keep your job as as mediator between God and man, uh, mediator for the people. And in Leviticus 16, the priests are given these instructions that when they go to God, when the priest goes at the tabernacle or at the temple, and they they go to meet with God, uh, they have to... Uh, make sacrifices for themselves. So they have to slaughter an animal for the priest's own sins and the sins of their own family. They slaughter a bull. And then there was a particular kind of sacrifice that was made for the people. Once a year, there's this thing called the Day of Atonement, the day of covering over your sin. All of your sins for all of the year get gathered up on this one day, and the priest will take the sins of the people symbolically and transfer those sins to two animals, to two uh, goats. It's, it's weird, but let me just explain it and we'll get to Jesus here in a minute. Um, there are two goats. One is, uh, one is a goat that, that you say, okay, this is for the sins of the people. And the goat would get sacrificed. They cut its throat, blood on the altar, burned up the whole thing like an a, a animal blood sacrifice. Lots of ancient cultures did this kind of thing. Um, and there was a second goat called the Azazel, which is which we, where we get the term scapegoat. Well, scapegoat is someone who takes the blame for you, right? Like, oh, they're my scapegoat. I did the thing, but they took the blame for it. The priest would take the scapegoat, the Azazel, and would lean on it and, and pressing into its neck it, and pray over it and confess the sins of the people onto this goat. So it's as if all of the sins of the nation are going through the priest's hands onto this goat. And then the goat is sent off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. It's, it's as if the sins are placed here, and they're sent away to be remembered no more. And so you have these two goats that are working together, um, that, that, are, that are work together with the priests um, to, to cover the sins. Uh, look at, let me read to you Exodus 16, verse 20. It explains a little bit about this. And when he had made an atoning for the holy place and the tent of meaning, uh, and the tent of meeting uh, of, of, and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So they confess the sins of the people and lay the hands on the goat. There's two parts of the symbolism. One, the sin is uh, atoned for, covered over in the sacrifice that an animal dies to, and, and, and covers over the sins of the people. And two, they, the sin is like sent away and sort of remembered no more, sent out into the wilderness. It's, it's kind of a kind an of interesting thing. And, and for like a millennia, this is the system. This is the way it works for the Israelites as they relate to God. They come to the temple in Jerusalem. They come there once a year the Day of Atonement, and their sin is covered by the blood of an animal. Someone dies, an animal dies, so that their sin can be covered and, and atoned, uh, atoned for. Now, that seems barbaric to us, to modern readers. We sort of go like, ew, like, it's very like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, blood sac- sacrifice, kind of gross, Stuff um, it, it feels it feels so barbaric and, and primitive, uh, but understand they didn't have you know television or whatever, and it's like this is a very dramatic object lesson of your sin costs something, your sin matters. When when you break a relationship with other people or with God, it's a big deal. And and when you when you see a priest will will we'll cut an animal and there's blood that comes out, you go oh that's That's the life force of that animal. Like something has to die in order for the evil to be defeated. And and you recognize, as an Israelite, as an ancient Israelite, you recognize that when you do bad things, when you sin, when you do evil, um, someone or something's going to pay for that. There will be a reckoning for the evil you do. It's it's not you who's going to climb up on that altar and be sacrificed. It's an animal who's going to die in your place. So... Merry Christmas. There it is. So what does it have to do with Christmas? Um, we, we talk, you know, wise men and Mary and Joseph and all that. Well, well Jesus comes along in, in 5 BC and is born in Bethlehem. And one of the things that the New Testament is pretty consistent about is that his life its not just an ordinary life. And it's not just, oh, he was a prophet or he was an interesting guy or a good teacher or anything like that. The New Testament is pretty clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. And it's pretty clear that Jesus dies as an atoning sacrifice, as atonement is in the idea of him even coming to earth, that he will cover over our sins, that he will die in our place like that, like that goat, like that lamb, like the bull, like the, like the animals that are slaughtered. He will give up his life for our sins, and his life, his death, and his resurrection changed the world. Because the animal sacrifice system was not sustainable. It worked for a, a period of like, An object lesson of maybe some foreshadowing, of foretelling what God was going to do. And it worked for Jews who were around Jerusalem and in the nation who could be there for that time period. But um, ultimately, it's not going to take your sins away. It'll it'll cover for them temporarily so that you can continue to be in a relationship with God and and continue to make things right with each other. But it wouldn't cover it ultimately. Um, And I guess if you were to put it in business terms, it's not a scalable model um, the whole world cannot come to Jerusalem. People in Japan are not going to come to Jerusalem to have their sins covered over by a, an animal sacrifice. Like, it's not scalable. And so God moved in history to do something to cover the sins of the world once and for all. And, and so the atonement looked different. Enter Jesus into the scene in Mark chapter 10, 45. This is what Jesus says about himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom, that is the word in the New Testament for atonement, as an atonement for many. What Jesus says about himself is, I'm here to fix this. I'm here to make, you right between, make things right between you and God. I'm going to atone, cover over your, your sins. That's what the cross is about. That's what we celebrate the communion when we take it. And we will take here in a few moments that, that, that Jesus has atoned for our sins. Now, the New Testament writes about this a lot, specifically the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to read you a chunk of it. Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about uh, this whole sacrificial system. And again, if you not, if you don't know the sacrificial system, a lot of Hebrews reads like, wow, this is kind of weird and gross. But I've given you some of the backstory. This should make more sense to you as we read Hebrews 10. Look at the way he is contrasting the sacrifice of Christ with maybe the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Um, uh, Hebrews 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never... By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? In other words, if you were made perfect after going and offering an animal sacrifice once a year, we wouldn't have to do it anymore. But that didn't, we all know that doesn't happen. You, you, you go make your animal sacrifice once a year, and then the next day you sin again. And you're like, oh, okay, and now I feel terrible again. And like you got this whole system, goes over and over. He said, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder, a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is what he's explaining to us. No matter how many sacrifices, you're not going to be made perfect. And what does perfect mean? What is, what is, what is he getting at there? Um, here's the deal. When you sin, you have guilt. You and I, we all have this. Even if you don't want to call it sin, if that word's like not comfortable for you, when you mess up, when you blow it, like, and, and, and not just oops, but you intentionally mess up, right? Like we all have experiences like that. When you do that, you have this sense of guilt and you've known this since grade school. You've known that things are are, are broken um, and you've learned like I did that other people sin and break things and then also I sin and break things. Sure, has a way of dealing with like the feeling and we all want it to go away. So the way we handle guilt is sort of with positivity and like Motivation Mondays on Instagram. We sort of go like, oh, like you go girl or you're awesome or don't let the haters you know, cut out the negative people in your life and don't let the haters get you down and that kind of thing um, when, when there's brokenness or, or guilt or whatever. And now you shouldn't be feeling all that. You, you know, you're amazing. And we tell people how unbelievably amazing they are a lot, right? And that's kind of our modern sort of therapeutic, psychological approach to dealing with guilt. And we'll tell people not to judge and we'll say like Tupac, only God can judge me and all that kind of thing. Um, and, and so we try to self-talk and esteem, self-esteem our way through all that. But I think the problem is still there. You can you can positivity up all you want, but you're still guilty. There's still guilt there. How To whatever degree you're feeling it or not, there's still guilt there that needs to be dealt with. Our conscience is pricked no matter how we feel. And what Jesus does is he removes the guilt. His his atoning sacrifice, he covers over the guilt for, for not just sins that had come before him, but for all, for us now, even today. He covers over the guilt and goes, I have taken this away and this is going to be okay. I have made things right between you and, and, and God. Um, listen to the way it says in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he answered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer uh, sanctified... for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? They would actually take blood of animals and animal sacrifices and sprinkle them around places of the altar. It's not just the sins that need to be atoned for. Sometimes your sins have effects out throughout society, and how do you cleanse society? The Israelites didn't just think in terms of, my sins need to be covered, but they thought in terms of, the nation needs to be covered, the people, the way we interact, so the things we might call systemic now, systemic racism or systemic problems, right? They, they thought in those terms as well and said, okay, the, the blood is sprinkled around the, uh, uh, the the blood of the sacrifices is to cover over the systemic stuff as well. And so he, uh, the author of Hebrews is saying, no, uh, Christ is going to purify our consciousness, um, which means that feeling that we have of guilt, um, Christ can, can work on that too and help us to be free of that. It's not just that you are positionally right with God, it's that you are also um, psychologically right with God and that he is atoned for your sin. He has provided a scapegoat. Which brings us back to Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to the way this finishes up. Um, and every priest stands daily at, this, at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time once and for all, said, I have put the sins of all the people for all time onto the scapegoat and sent him out. And I will remember those sins no more. And the sacrifice has been made and, and we have been covered. So what does all of this mean for us today? Believe me, I didn't start out the year thinking, let's talk blood sacrifice right before Thanksgiving. It's going to be really interesting. People are going to, but, but, but I think there's something here. And these are things that we need to remember. If nothing else, we remember how serious sin is, that when, when sin happens and when evil happens, someone dies for it. You see this in other ways, not just in, in the Scripture or blood sacrifice. You see uh, the invasion of Normandy for great evil to be defeated in World War II. People had to die. This is what happens when evil is unleashed in the world. Something will, will pay for it and cover it in some way. So a couple points and then we're done. Number one, because of Jesus, God has set and will set the world right. The first move that God makes to set the world right is, is sending Jesus. And this is the beginning of him undoing the evil in the world. Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God and says, there's this alternate kingdom to the world and I am the king of it and you can follow me and become part of it. And so we proclaim that. We Teach that we we believe that we live that out in our day to day and we go, "I am an American citizen, sure, but i 'm part of a larger kingdom and that really matters, and it really matters right now that that i 'm part of a of a larger kingdom, and that kingdom is trying to undo the evil in the world we 're trying to make uh, earth like heaven. We're trying to make the things that are broken uh, to, to be restored and, and healthy and whole. So we're, we're part of all that thing, but the scripture is also clear that salvation and the kingdom and all of those things that God is going to do, these are already here, but they're not yet here. It's confusing. It's, it's, it's the, the concept. Theologians talk about this all the time. They say, our salvation is already, but not yet. In other words, Christ died on the cross and saved you You came to him, you were baptized into him, you were saved, and then you will one day be saved because there is a future thing coming for us that is much better than what we have here on earth. There's a time coming where God is going to ultimately set the world right, where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's written about at the end of the Bible. Revelation 21 says this. This is the way it's described. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Let me pause here. This is really good stuff, guys. This is good news. This is hopeful news. This is, hey, let's, let's remember even in 2020 and all the craziness that's happened this year, let's remember the truth of this, of where history is going. What do we truly believe here? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of heaven, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I love this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the hope that we have that there's a new heaven and a new earth coming. There's going to be no more pain, death, sorrow, elections, viruses, uh, racism. Like these things will pass away and that God is doing, will do a new thing and will set the world right. The brokenness that you have felt since childhood and that you have known that the world is not right. God, there will come a day when God sets it right and, and, and we cling to that hope as followers of Jesus. So because of Jesus God has set the world and will set the world right. Number 2, God can set your world right too. God can set your world right too. Not just the world, but you. Your brokenness, your your the the ways that you've blown it, your sins. God can can heal those things and atone for those things and cover those things because the truth is we are broken. We all have blood on our hands. We are like Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare who's got blood on her hands and she keeps saying out, out, spot. She, couldn't, she keeps trying to wring her hands and get the blood off of her hands. This is the way we are. We have all sinned. All of us sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we must be cleansed by him, and made right by him. First John 1 John seven says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This happens when we are baptized. When you give your life to Christ, you are baptized into Christ. It is a washing away of your sin. It is a cleansing, not, not a, a removal of dirt from the body. It's not like I'm just getting in water like I'm taking a bath, but you are placed in water, and God purifies us from the inside out when we are baptized. Uh, this is why we, we challenge you and we ask you, if you've not been baptized, please c- come talk to us. Get baptized and start this thing with God. Get into this relationship and let him cleanse you from sin. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to lead your life, and he can cleanse you from sin. Um, the blood of Jesus gets applied to our lives. That atoning sacrifice gets applied to our lives at baptism. And the other thing where we see the blood of Jesus show up is in the Lord's Supper. Before Jesus dies, he offers this, we call it communion, but he offers his bread and juice, this this bread and wine, and he says, this is my body and blood. He's talking about this atonement idea um, and that those are to be applied to us as well. So whenever we take communion, as we will here in just a moment, we are remembering that atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then finally this, atonement is about love. Atonement is about love. Because it's easy to hear this and go, well, God demands justice because he's a bloodthirsty tyrant and he wants to be appeased, and we, animals have to die so we can appease the gods, that kind of ancient world idea. Um, and justice is certainly involved. We have criminal justice systems where you punish people for, their, for the crimes that they commit, right? That's how the system works. And unless you punish people, the system has no teeth in it. So there is a system in the ancient world that you will punish for crimes, but God actually set up a system that's about love and about not punishing us for every crime we commit, but, but providing a scapegoat, providing an out for us. This is what Christ has done. Uh, this flows out of love. Not a, a, this idea of atonement flows out of love. Most clearly seen in First John chapter 4, listen to this. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation. That's not a word we use often, but it's that idea of atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God loved us so much that he gave. God sent his son into the world. Uh, God God sent his son to die for us. This flows out of love, not just out of, uh, you know, justice. So we're going to celebrate that in communion today. I want to pray, and then, and then we'll take communion. But uh, I hope this has been helpful for you to kind of get some of the big picture behind what Jesus came to do. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for the atonement that you cover over our sins. God, for the ways um, that we have all felt broken and the ways that we have noticed that the world is not right. God, we, we cling to the hope that you have a plan and that um, you have begun to set the world right, and that you ultimately will set the world right. God, for those of us in the room who feel distant from you and that we have not been made right with you, um, may we take the next next steps, whether it's to be baptized or to confess sins to one another or to be to get involved with a group where we can share life uh, and grow closer to you. I pray we take those next steps that are needed. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.